Welcome to the Preaching Lab Podcast, brought to you by the Essential Church Podcast Network. The Preaching Lab is a space where we talk about the art and science of preaching with some of the world's best communicators. And now, here is today's episode. Good? Well, I'm great. I was just talking. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> you, I'm ready do the, no, you do this with guests. You do like you do like the five to ten minute. It's like, like the warm-up. Warming the pond. Yeah. And then we go. It's also I haven't spoken to too many humans yet today. So it's <laughs> also for my own good, like connecting brain to body. Yeah. Do you not talk to anyone in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> I talk to people. Just you and it's just you and just God. Just me and the Lord. Yeah, that's fun. In the in the silent, the communion of silence, you know. Mm. Yeah, you pick him up, you, you, you <laughs> rip him for a minute, then you put him back down. Something like get that. Get in the car. Yeah. Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining us on what is like officially the first episode of the Preaching Lab podcast. Woo-hoo. This is exciting. Very new things, mm-hmm. new endeavors. Um, we have with us today, Casey. Fritz, Casey, uh, I joked with you before we got on here that I was going to attempt to read a bio for you to sort of set up who you are, why we're talking to you in the first place. And I was like, you know what, let's just let Casey sort of introduce himself. So Casey, Mm -hmm. let's uh, let's go big, broad question here. Who is Casey (laughs) Fritz? (laughs) Well, uh, dude, I had no idea. I'm your first guest. Dude, this thing's going to be dead on arrival. <laughs> this is the biggest mistake. I thought I was the bottom of your barrel. I thought you guys have gone through all the others. That's right. And you're like, no, Casey Prince is first. Oh, you are going to be so You are fresh out of the Here gate, my friend. Oh, man. So who is Casey Fritz? Uh, uh, Casey Fritz loves Jesus. Casey Fritz has been married for... 18 years. Casey Fritz has two kids, one senior, one freshman. Casey Fritz just got out of the hospital with a son who had an erupted appendix last week, oh, and we've man. been in the hospital for six days. Casey Fritz is tired. <laughs> Casey Fritz is. Casey Fritz lives uh, in New England. Um, I'm trying to think how deep you want me to go. Casey Fritz <laughs> is, is, is a bit overweight. Um, Casey Fritz is actively dieting. Um, I love Little Caesars. So I, I can go as deep as you want to go. I can go as stupid as you want to go, but then um, I'll try to keep it professional. I love this. Casey, you are a recognized author and illustrator. You are a former church planter and pastor. Mm-hmm. You are now the elder of a church up in Maine. Those things. Connecticut. Connecticut. Yes. That's right. Somewhere yeah. out yeah. east. Somewhere out there. (laughs) (laughs) They're all, it's a jumbled mess, dude. Somewhere out there. But you are a brilliant storyteller, Mm. um, a brilliant illustrator, um, and we're super excited to have you on this morning. I think it's going to be a fun time. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's start with what we're tentatively calling the first five, which is, um, I think every Mm. podcast interview is this sort of like walk through the woods and you're trying to figure out who you're with and who you're talking to and what you're about. The goal of this is to uh, get us like headfirst into the water and sort of create like a profile of who is Casey Fritz as a preacher? Hmm. (laughs) Who is Casey Fritz as a preacher? So first question out of the gate, Casey, do you remember the first time you ever preached a sermon? And if you do, what happened? Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Well, 
there's a couple different ways. Do you want to, do you want to ask the first time I preached a sermon in general to like toddlers? Cause I taught a toddler class for about six years every Sunday night at a church in Arizona, faithfully walking them through Leviticus, walking them through <laughs> the law, walking them through Revelation. And so I could go off about that or my very first sermon in front of a main auditorium real room. We let's, can talk about let's that. Let's do because- main auditorium real room. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. Toddlers are real Do you people, want to, too. I they just are want to clarify toddlers that. Are people they too. are. Well, and, and if you want to know what happened, I can immediately get, in, get into the horror story of what really happened with that sermon because it destroyed me my entire life. One single moment. Okay, go. My entire life. Wow. I uh, And we can talk about sermon prep and, and, and your breath bites, as Daryl Johnson calls them, and how you write it out because that all play into this. But essentially, um, there's a dyslexia with me. And so... I was reading an illustration on my notes on word for word manuscript. So if you hear my sermon, I wrote it out. So essentially what happened was, is uh, I was reading an illustration about a guy named um, Butch Mitchell. Oh, Butch Mitchell. You, you see, Rory already knows. I, I already know exactly where this is going. Tread lightly. And I tread, I, I will tread lightly. And all I said was I mixed their words together and I said the B word. Oh man. And I said that, to a room full of people, and uh, I just dead stopped. It was awkward. It was silent. I must have been. I must have been twenty three, oh, and I was destroyed. I was destroyed. I, it was totally accidental, obviously, but that set the trajectory in the first fifteen minutes for the rest of the thirty <laughs> or whatever. And I was just done, dude. And so I remember that sermon. I remember it was called "Walking on Sunshine." Um, it was an old Chuck Smith line, a quote that he said that I sort of stole for this thing. And, um, it was a Calvary Chapel I was at and boy, it wrecked me. But if you want to talk about that sermon other than that, I couldn't tell you any other aspect of that sermon (laughs) other than I destroyed that moment and nobody could hear a single word after that is my worst fear in preaching is that the like accidental or purposeful, like curse word comes out and you just derail the whole thing. Mm. Well, to that point, I will not say the word fire truck ever in a sermon for that reason. I won't say fire truck. I will have to go the fire automobiles that come down the road because everybody's like, you mean fire truck? The team of first responders that includes Bebo who respond to fires. Oh, man. So that's that's my first sermon. I couldn't tell you what it's about. We could talk about who I am as a preacher, but that I mean, was congratulations my for getting back on the horse after that. I'm actually very interested in what got you thinking that you should do it again after that. <laughs> I don't know if I did do it again after that sermon there. I think I was fired somewhat close yeah, you to went after that. You went, to the, you went into the wilderness for 40 years like Moses and emerged with your white beard here. Oh, dude, that's funny. Okay, second question, firing them off. Casey, what is the most memorable sermon you have ever heard? Oh, Ooh, great dude. question. Yes, yes. Um, I definitely, definitely remember that. I was a pastor actually for some time at a Calvary Chapel in Prescott, Arizona. And some dude handed me a DVD. This is how old it is. And he said, hey, there's this tattooed pastor in Los Angeles named Tim Chadwick. And I said, tattooed pastor? Young guy. I popped in the sermon in a nursery in the children's ministry, and it was on the wrath of God, the beautiful side of the wrath of God by Tim Chadwick. Wow. It was the first time 
I think either I've heard or fully understood the gospel. And I sat in the nursery weeping my eyes out at the wrath of God. And it changed the entire trajectory of my entire life. So much so that I started consuming everything by Tim Chaddock. If you know who he is, we can talk about that. So much so, and I was, a uh, 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 heart's desire started to sort of, uh, a coals were burning within me. And then a mm-hmm. um, handful of years later, we moved out there and I became a lead pastor with him wow. at Reality LA in, in the heart of Hollywood. And uh, he's still my favorite preacher. I mean, him, Brendan Manning, uh, Thomas Schreiner, uh, these guys are all kind of up there for differing reasons, but I will always contribute to that man as the sort of spear that ran into my heart of like, wow. I want to preach like this. I want to be like this. I want to know, I want to know what he knows. Like it was all those things that sort of clicks in a preacher and you're like, pop, 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 pop. You're like, holy smokes. Yeah. Wow, dude. So, Let, it was powerful. Uh, let's keep, let's keep rolling here. I was going to ask you what your most embarrassing preaching moment is, but I think we've covered that. <laughs> I have we a did. feeling we yeah, covered it. Right. So let me ask you this question instead. Uh, it's Sunday morning. It's 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Someone calls you and says, Casey, I need you to drive here right now. I need you to preach a sermon. You've got 30 minutes to figure out what you're doing. Yep. Where does Casey's brain go in the Bible? Where are you like, this is where I'm going? Always, always, uh, always will go to, because I've had to do this a couple times before, John 1, like 37 through 46, where Jesus sees Nathaniel sitting under a tree. Wow. If you remember that, and, yeah, he's, and it. it was that, that unbelievable moment where yep. he's like, he's like, I, I know who you are. And he's like, how do you know me? Because he goes, I saw I you saw sitting you. under a fig tree. And he goes, and he goes, you are, you know, God and rabbi and Lord. And he goes, because I saw you sitting under wow. a fig tree. Wow. And he goes, you're going to see greater things than these. And that struck me as what Jesus picked up in Nathaniel was not piety. It was not power. It was not preaching. It was not anything. He was sitting and resting under a tree. And Jesus goes, I want to be with that dude. Mm, yeah. And literally, he goes, as much as you see me right here and now, you're going to see me do incredible things, more so than the uh, Jacob's Ladder. Mm. you know. And so that, wow. to me, was such a defining moment that I think people need to come to understand of Jesus, that he looks at you in your most middling unremarkable, boring, dullest of moments, mm. Jesus comes and approaches us there. Can I ask that, a question about that, Casey? I, I think a person's, like, I think a person's preaching voice comes out of their biography, mm. you know, mm. and the strength of our preaching comes out of our lived experience with God. Do you mind just sharing one minute or so on when that text came home to you? What is it in your story? Mm. Oh, man. That makes that story uh, so meaningful for you. Oh, Andrew, I couldn't agree more. A hundred percent, like your sermons are truth, like truth through personality, right? Yep. Truth through experience. And so that came out of me because, uh, and actually has to do with preaching. So this will work, I think quite well is, uh, I, I'm, I'm not a dynamic preacher or I think, you know, I think I've got a spirit of John Knox in me. There's a bit of timidity mm-hmm. and, um, nervousness and insecurity mm-hmm. And when your flesh is trying to cling to sword, sword, some sort of impact hmm. and some sort of Acts 2 moment where Peter says six words and 3,000. I mean, Peter gave a crappy sermon <laughs> and 3,000 something got saved. It wasn't a good sermon. It was just simple and clear hmm. and to the point. And all that to say is I was trying to cling to and make my prayer, God, allow me to be okay with the middling. 
God, allow me to be an unremarkable person for your glory. God, allow me to be found by you in the boring. And so I started down a long trajectory of just trying to discover Christ in the most basic of moments and elements from boring old bread from communion to giving a cup of cold water in my name. And so I was trying to be on a trajectory that the only thing I need to be special in is the glory of Jesus Christ, Mm. not my own, and accept the fact that I know Christ better while sitting under a tree versus preaching to thousands and thousands Mm. and thousands. So good, man. Wow. Let you, I think, hit some of these. But Casey, give me, what are the like three adjectives to describe you as a preacher, if you're naming Mm. them? I have... Preached enough and been in pastoral ministry long enough to know that I lean on the prof- prophetic prophet side. So I, um, I've been often called the, um, what do you call it? Like uh, the cleaver. <laughs> I'm the meat cleaver. Okay. Um, everybody else might be the scalpel. I might be more of the meat cleaver. Um, so there's a prophetic side that I would say that I try to lean into, sort of the, the trumpet blast of truth and... Um, exhortation, I would say extremely raw. I, I think, I think I have maybe potentially, um, ability to disarm, especially the unchristian, the unchurched. So I can disarm because of the way I look, because of who I am, because I try to overly share, which is, has gotten me in trouble. <laughs> I will say discretion is a part of the pulpit, but I have learned to share enough to allow walls to fall, like their Jericho walls of their hearts to fall. Hmm. And I'd probably say the last thing is um, coming to sort of an acceptance that I'm the only reason I might have an impact as a preacher is because I think I'm a pastoral preacher. Mm -hmm. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not your, I I wouldn't be good at your conference. I think I'm good with the church. Mm -hmm. I think I'm good with a small local church. Uh, don't I mean I preached to you know reality lay at the time was three to five thousand people and I taught there a bunch and that was great and it was fun but dude give me where I can see like if you listen mm-hmm. to my sermons I will call people out by name every single time am I right Tom am I right Jerry am I right Susan so a pastor's preacher prophetic and raw uncut rough edges is kind of where I try to stay in those spheres dude that's so good uh, there's obviously a humility that flows off of you too, and I, I don't just say that. I think there's a anyone who's willing to say like, "Let me be someone who's not that impressive," mm. requires a deep sense of humility, which is, I think, quite interesting because you are a incredibly gifted storyteller, an incredibly <laughs> gifted illustrator, which is what I I want to spend like most of our time here sort of dialoguing about. Is I think one of the key elements of preaching is creativity. It's how you bring mm. those things to life. Um, mm-hmm. so Casey, when you think about preaching and storytelling, I, let me just ask you a question to sort of get the ball rolling on this is preaching storytelling or is it something completely different? Hmm. I think it's, I think the answer to that's yes and no. I think we're always telling a story, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes we do it from didactic text. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, that don't get me wrong. I would rather preach Exodus or Ruth more than, um, Romans or first John all day, but you can tell a story from those, but I just lean narrative driven, a homiletical plot. You know, the sermon is narrative. If you guys are familiar with Eugene Lowry and his sort of exploration of the sermon is narrative, I lean that way, but I do think you can get that way. So if I'm going to teach a text from more of a didactic letter epistle, 
I, I think you are still telling the story that makes it come alive of why that letter was even written. Mm-hmm. So it's a yes and, and yes and no, in my opinion. But uh, it's not what probably puts juice into my tank of those sort of leanings. I want to go, now look how Orpa left Naomi and Ruth clung to her or something mm-hmm. like that. That type of stuff really, really really gets me jazzed, if you know what I mean. So you, I mean, you're more motivated and driven by the narrative side of preaching then than the didactic side. And I ask that question because I'm just getting to know you a little bit here and I've listened to some of your preaching and you really are a good teacher. Mm -hmm. So you do the didactic Mm -hmm. really well, but it sounds like the central fire of your preaching actually comes more from the art of storytelling. Yes. And and that's very nice of you to say. So I appreciate your kindness in saying that. No, I... It, it does that stuff. I'll just say that stuff that gets me more excited as as a person and as a preacher. I I love to preach the Bible and the full counsel of God's word, of course. But man, oh man, I would much rather walk verse by verse through a Ruth narrative, Exodus narrative, whatever, and just show how it old the acts unfold. Yeah, and and that excitement level of watch, watch, watch what he says, and I love the the sort of uh, f- the the flaws of every single character we have in the Bible and being able to sort of exploit those yeah. for my purposes <laughs> is so rich to me and so beautiful. And it's also at the same time, it just sort of unhinges or unleashes uh, people's opinions of biblical Titans. Right. You know what I mean? And so I love what he's doing without even having to work yeah. at it. Like mm-hmm. you're undoing people's mindsets with not even, even mentioning it. Yeah. You're just saying, look how this person did this. You know, and so I love when that happens and there's so much that happens narratively. And I think people are more attracted to a story. That's yeah. why the Bible's a story, not a recipe or a cookbook or whatever you want to say, or a manual. We there is something that we're attracted to with stories. And so I try to push into that as much as I can. How much does that filter also into your use of personal story as mm-hmm. illustration? You know? I mean there's cause yeah. we're the biblical story is the story that encompasses all stories. So I think if we're yep. preaching rightly, we're not just preaching the biblical story, but we're preaching our own stories and stories we've seen to show that. And the really good preachers are preachers that they tell those stories well. They show the small stories within the larger story. So how, does that, you know, how much for you it, does that kind of play together? Use of personal I, stories, illustration. Yeah, I think on one hand, I think like you were already saying, and I think you said it well, which is, you can't but help teach any text Mm -hmm. from your own experience. So no matter what, you are always telling an aspect of your story. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to using actual real stories, for one, you know, there's always, I think, kind of uh, an unspoken rule is you can't share a story of yourself that is glorifying to what you've done. Right. I don't like those stories. So if you're like up there and like, let me tell you how I raised my kids to be angels. And (laughs) you're like, okay, cool. So I only will tell stories of brokenness. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody's significantly aware who's sat at collective church, the church I planted, um, that uh, I was severely abused as a child. I think everybody's aware that my mom's had five divorces. I think everybody's aware that my grandma has tried to sleep with all of my mother's husbands and was successful with some of them. Wow. Like you, like it's just darkness. I'm everybody's wow. aware. My brother is a non-binary transgender, and so everybody's aware. Like all those type of things. So. I am very free with these details so that those Jericho walls around people's hearts can come down. Mm. And so I can just show, hey, I'm up here still, not because of a circumstance of life, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Mm. This is what can over. So I just try to show how Christ's victory and even the world's crappiest of circumstances. 
That's so. so good, Casey. You mentioned the like tension of oversharing with some of those things, and yeah. what you're talking about right now, or even some really delicate things. Mm-hmm. What would what would you say to the like pastor or teacher who's going, man? I want to figure out how to share those pieces of my life in a way that is within the boundaries mm-hmm. of comfortability and safety for people. Because I I know so many pastors who hold those stories, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about them in the like in the green room. Would you? But they're they're timid about what it, me saying it on a platform. What? How has that worked for you? Have you mustered up the courage to even do some of those things? Well, I don't even. I don't know to be honest how much courage I needed. I think I'm just an I'm an oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> so saying those things lacks more courage than me trying to walk through an expose of like incest in first Corinthians or something. You know what I mean? Like trying to figure out those points. So I wouldn't say it was necessarily courage. The discretion aspect is just kind of coming down to, Hey, I'm the difference between I'm struggling with sin as your pastor versus I'm struggling with pornography as your pastor. Mm, Sure. And so there's a way to share without completely sucking the air out of the room that, loses trust or confidence that you're actually walking through this faithfully. Yeah. And so I think it's different for everybody's disposition or posture. So because of how I preach or how I deliver myself and have done so, like I wouldn't say any of that stuff like at a gospel coalition conference, but with people who I'm in deep, deep community with, there is a level that I am trying to inspire in their own vulnerability in their own community or discipleship groups that I have to be able to go there myself, be able to lead them there. So there's a lot of contexts around this that if you are going to learn how to be vulnerable, um, it, A, you have to be able to do it in the right sermon. You have to be able to do it in the right church with the right people, with mm. the right understanding of discretion. Right. Um, and obviously, I don't think I would share anything without the certain affirmation from your local elders. Like, hey, I really want to get into this. Mm. So when I left Good. my church plant, and we could talk about that all day. That's a whole different seven-hour podcast. I let them into some deep, deep things that I was going through in order to paint a picture that my saying yes to Jesus will always be first or I don't have the worthiness to be your pastor. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of model that. So I don't think I'm necessarily answering your question because it it might be a little bit nuanced. But if you have the position or excuse me, the posture, the discretion, the certain affirmation, the right story and knowing how to tell that story to get out of it. Mm. So I think some people will start to say something vulnerable, but they don't know how to get out of it or how to connect Mm. it rightly to what Jesus is doing. So you have to be able to connect those dots as well. So there's a lot in there and I'm not saying I'm good at it or well at it. I have seen it be successful from my particular circumstance, knowing that when I bring those walls down, there's a certain level of they're allowing Jesus then to come in. But it's very, very nuanced. I've sometimes thought, because I've struggled with this too, I'm 42, I've been preaching for about 20 years, and I have mm-hmm. such a high value on authenticity as well. And mm-hmm. I believe in what Paul says, you know, he's like, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast of the yes. things that show my weaknesses. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell a bunch Amen. of stories that make me the hero. So, and I think especially as a young preacher, I really seized onto that and went, oh, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's a good idea. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be vulnerable. And I got myself into a ton of trouble as a young preacher oversharing in the same mm-hmm. way that it sounds like you have at times. And I think what I learned, and tell me what you think about this, I think what I learned is if I'm going to be vulnerable, if I'm going to show people pain and weakness and all of that, I also need to let them know that it's being resolved and carried in other places so that I'm not yeah. shifting the burden onto them. 
Because what I don't want is I don't want the congregation thinking, my pastor is in trouble, (laughs) and I don't know if anybody is helping him, Mm -hmm. and maybe Mm -hmm. it's my responsibility in some way to help Mm -hmm. him. You know what I mean? I can't dishonor the relationship by shifting a burden onto them that they're not in a position to bear. What do you think about that? Totally agree. And so that's, yeah, the, the connecting the dots, being able to go from despair or depravity to hope. Yeah. Saying this is what Je- this is how Jesus got me out of this. Yep. But I mean, some things like you know sharing about my father's rejection of me. Yep. Mm-hmm. So my father has utterly rejected me, even quite recently, kind of a thing. There's some stuff with that where it's like the the, the hopeless. It's a hopeless situation. It's a hopeless circumstance. But my hope in Christ is my, or as He's brought me to my own heavenly Father. And so I would just think that the situation can still be dire. Yeah. While in Christ, it can be victorious. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you connect that dots or connect those dots, I think people will see that. It's like, hey, this is real. This has happened. This is who I am. This is raw. But then you have to be able to carry people going, but this is yep. what Jesus has done. And yeah. so I'm with you. If you're like, hey, guys, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. All right, let's open up to Romans 1. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. And and also, if, it's not, if a pastor isn't in the habit of being transparent or sharing his weakness, I think also as well, it's going to come across, wait a minute, what's going on? You've never spoken us to before about this. Yeah. So if you have a pastor who's listening to this now, they're going, I'm going to start doing this this Sunday. It's like, whoa, dog, like <laughs> maybe you want to figure out, like hmm. understand how you're going to drip this culture in of vulnerability, transparency, raw personalness. So yeah, I'd say there's so many things at play, but I'm totally with you. And I'll just repeat this is anytime we just hand them our burdens. Yeah as what they might be sin or brokenness with no resolution in Christ, we're actually doing a disservice to mm. our people. Can I ask one more question yeah, on this point? Rolling. Okay. So do you think, you know, when I, like you are, I'm a student of church history. And so I've read the sermons of Augustine and Calvin and mm-hmm. Spurgeon and folks like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I notice is that they very rarely use personal examples. You know, so here's Paul, which is interesting because Paul's always kind of using personal examples. He's always in his yeah. letters. He's always talking about his life. But there was like a yeah. pivot away from that. And I don't know that that diminished the power of their preaching. You know, Augustine was obviously a powerful preacher and Calvin for sure. And Spurgeon, I mean, was packing it out. Um, but I wonder if you could just remark on, do you think it's a liability in our culture not to be vulnerable? You know, if a preacher kind of in our day and age made the decision to be like, I'm just going to speak the truth and tell the gospel and tell the biblical story and never show anything about my life. Mm. Could that work in 2023 or is that a liability? (laughs) (laughs) What do you you think about uh, that? That's that's an incredible question. Yeah. I would say what's interesting is I actually just started finishing a lot of the last remaining sermons of John Knox. And I think what was interesting about his Scottish Reformation is he was probably leaning more vulnerable. Mm. Um, at times in his certain sermons. So I think there's a sort of take and give there with certain of the um, reformers or church history. But I will say this. I don't know if I could speak for the country as a whole, but I think if we look, I think what what makes, um, and don't get me in trouble for this, but you know what I mean. What makes Trump so attractive? Mm. And to so many people is he has dismantled political talk and replaced it with pigeon language. He's replaced it with, this is who it is. And he's exploiting certain peoples and things like that. And, or what is made, you know, um, or how about this? I'll even say, I'll say this about my own context in Los Angeles. If you're not often authentic or genuine or sincere, dude, Los Angeles is going to eat you up. Yep. They are the creators of fake, of the synthetic. And if you <laughs> yeah, come right. in with any sort of synthetic touch, 
Like if you show up with a bunch of lights on your stage and a fog machine in yeah. LA, they will set fire to your building. Yeah. <laughs> because what they're looking for is just give me something human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me something real, which give me something of, of, of value to show me that this has actually worked in your life. You're the pastor. You're supposed to shepherd me and guide me or lead me, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. if I can't see the power of the gospel working in your life effectively through real challenges, how dare you speak to us to tell us to clean anything up mm, yeah. or tell us to look at these things? So I can't speak as a whole as our country or nation or things like that, but I would say the temperament of the church is much more leaning towards genuine, sincere, transformation gospel and less flash less sexy status less sneakers here's the thing too and here's what i'm constantly disrupted by and you guys know this well i am so bothered that any preaching today leads to book deals Mm. sneaker instagrams (laughs) platforms or bigger churches yeah what what true preaching according to paul jesus and peter led to execution beheadings, crucified upside down, Mm -hmm. boiled in tar. Wait a minute. What are we missing? Mm. What are we missing, folks, of the two levels of differing preaching? Mm -hmm. Now, I know there's a lot of nuance in that theologically we could get to, but all that to say to me is the level of preaching that's reaching the heart of the people is raw and it's real and it's effective and it's it's disruptive. Mm -hmm. And if we're not disrupting or protesting I'm not talking about political stuff, but if we're not protesting certain sins or feelings or emotions or anything that's not yeah. authentic, dude, I don't want a piece of it. I don't mm. want to be, a, I don't want a piece of any of that. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think we are heading that way. If we're not already there, that if you are not preaching, you're not being genuine, mm. you're not going to have a genuine church. And so when that preacher leaves, so will your church. Mm-hmm. Casey, I think what you've given us over these last few minutes is a clear picture of where Casey, when he's preaching, is trying to sort of land, like where he, what you want to feel like, what you want to represent when you're on a platform. Can we go like nuts and bolts a little bit and talk when, when Monday rolls around, you've been asked by your lead pastor, hey, I want you to preach this weekend. Uh How do you, how does Casey start prep? Like how does Casey open the Bible, do a text, and start? What are you looking for? What does that process look like for you? Because I, I think, as I've talked to more and more pastors and preachers, the like the spot where they all, like, I think that makes or breaks what a sermon becomes, is the it's the first, like, two hours of it, of mm-hmm. the preparation of it. So what does that look like for Casey? And I'd also love to hear you guys as well, but maybe that's not what you do in the podcast. Yeah, we can I'm do whatever you want. I think we don't know what we do. We, <laughs> this is the yeah, first episode, episode, so one. we can go wherever you want. Yeah, we're casting the die right now. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I'm always learning new best practices, Sure. as probably every preacher is. Like, I am hoping that by a certain preaching how-to book that's like, please give me something to cling to, <laughs> that I can start implementing um, because I don't, I don't necessarily like my prep. I'm not, I'm not happy with my prep. I, I failed every class in school, so I don't know how to study well. Mm. So I've learned to trust if it, re- if sermons really are truth per- through personality, I've learned to trust that what stands out to me is potentially what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. Mm. So it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's unique. Mm. So as if I do my reading through all the different translations. And then I do my brain dump on Monday. And then do I do my commentary scholastic work on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And then I do my Thursday, Friday, actually trying to put this together. 
that's kind of usually what happens. But I'm learning to trust or be more sensitive to spirit when something goes, well, that's interesting to me. Yeah. I'm trying to trust going, why does that stand out to me? You know, and I, I think that sounds a little bit elementary, but getting to that point of, I think getting to that point of ignoring what Keller focused on, ignoring what Chandler focused on or whoever else and getting to what the Holy Spirit's really trying to do to you. Because you can go look at, oh, what did Chandler say about blankety blank? Oh, he really focused on this word. But why does this one word keep standing out to me? It's like, but I'm not aligning with these big dogs who've got 20,000 person churches. (laughs) It's like, exactly, exactly. Mm. So anytime there's a moment where there's a sting or sweetness, I'm still learning after 20 years or something as well. Like, okay, pour into that, Mm. pour into that. And like I said, I'm manuscript. Yeah. Right. So 3,500 words is 35 minutes. And uh, I don't like that I'm manuscript. I don't like that I'm word for word, but I'm trying, I'm really trust the spirit in my prep. And I don't trust me to wing it at all. I'm not a winger. I don't trust me up there to do it because I will get myself into trouble. I will. And I'll tangent. And then all of a sudden it's going to yeah. be a 58 minute sermon. Yeah. It's like, how did we get here? Yeah. So. I'm really, everybody's like, you need to be trusting more of the pulpit. It's like, cool. I'm just trying to trust more in the spirit and my prep. Yeah. Mm. And hopefully the pulpit is where that trust kind of is practiced. Casey, can I ask you a so, question on yeah. that? You, the, the word that you use was like, you're trying to pay attention for a sweetness. Mm. Yeah. And I thought that was really good. I, it, I you know, I, I think about it like what, if I'm reading a story and there's a line that jumps out, it's got something on it. Or if I'm reading a bit of poetry then there's a turn of phrase that jumps out. Uh, my colleague here at New Life and I have talked about, Daniel Grothy, we've talked about the hum, mm. what's got mm. the hum on it as you're studying. <laughs> and, like you know, I'm seminary trained uh, 20 years ago. I went to uh, Trinity, Trinity Evangelical <laughs> Divinity School up in Chicago. And they had such a rigorous method for how to preach, which I appreciated so much. But there was such an emphasis on comprehensiveness. And mm. so if you're handling a text... There's a method by which you're going to put in front of the congregation all of the things that they need to know about this text. And I just didn't find that helpful. One, because the text is always inexhaustible. It's Mm -hmm. always a door into the infinite wisdom of God, so that you're never going to get to the bottom of it. But two, I just always felt like it started creating messages that lacked focus. Mm, And so it took a lot of reps, I think, for me over the years to like begin to really trust the hum and know that whatever that was in me that was really resonating with the text, that's actually what the focal point of the sermon needed to be. How did you get to that point where you started recognizing that? Because I think that that's a struggle for a lot of preachers is this tension between like, I want to make sure that I handle it right versus I have an instinct Mm -hmm. about this and I need to chase the instinct. Man, that's great. That's good. Um, I will say, I think, um, I think there's probably experience. I think every preacher, a young preacher will go through their chapters and seasons of ripping off Chandler, ripping off Driscoll, (laughs) ripping off Keller. And until like, everybody's like, find your voice, find your voice. The only way, what they mean by that, in my opinion, is find your hum, right? Mm -hmm. Find Mm -hmm. the stuff that is really because of the spirits laying that hum or that sweetness on your tongue. It's so that you can then go and forecast that to your people, your audience, your context, your culture. And so I was starting to recognize, or I was also growing sick of probably too many years of regurgitation. 
right. of too many things and thinking, well, they're effective because they said this line, I'll be effective because I say this line this way. And dude, I just started realizing the stuff that was resonating with our people and the feedback was the stuff that was like this this was sweet for me as well. Mm. And so you have to listen to your people. You have to smell like sheep, right? Yep. Yep. And so the whole point is like, oh, I'm starting. You have to just start to understand what starts to reverberate and what has a ripple effect. So I just started listening more to the spirit. I started listening more to my own prep or position or what the sweetness. And I just started listening to the people. And I think that sort of trifecta started to show me. So for an example, I have to teach in two weeks in Los Angeles again at my church plant. And they're doing like this little axe. 242 series thing. And uh, I was like, cool. There's a million beautiful things about them devoting to the apostles preachers, but I couldn't get past the word themselves. Mm. They devoted themselves. And you can read that. And that word is just such a simple word. But all of a sudden I was like tethered to it themselves. They devoted themselves. Yeah. Not that they're the pastors, the professionals, the, the clergy, they devoted themselves. And that all of a sudden to me was just sort of coming ablaze. For me, and it's just that little hum yeah. or that little sweetness that all of a sudden you just started connecting, connecting, connecting. So maybe those that, that trinity of more of the spirit, more of what I just liked and more of what was resonating with the people, I started listening to that and leaning into that. I'm not saying it's super effective. I'm just, I'm still practicing it. Mm-hmm. I'm still a student of practicing that. And like what Keller said is your first 200 sermons suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so <laughs> once you start getting past those first 200, um, which I have, and you get past those, Dude, you start to take certain liberties of trusting mm-hmm. or certain liberties of I'm going to focus on them- themselves because you've got the biblical framework done. You know the people well enough. Yes. You know your personality well enough. I'm just going to lay this out Do there. you know, I don't know so if you realize lot- what you're saying here, Casey, but it's interesting. In Eugene Peterson's book, Working the Angles, which was mm-hmm. kind of, what it was one of his earlier books, and it was sort of his diatribe against the McDonaldization of the church, I think is what he said. Yes. Kind of in that book. but and And so he talks about pastoral ministry as an exercise in spiritual direction. And he says, what we're doing is we're listening to God in three domains, Mm -hmm. the text of scripture, my own heart, (laughs) and the lives of people in front of me, which is what you just said there. Is that, was that, was that conscious? Did you, or are you just like, are you somehow dialing up the muse of Eugene? (laughs) Eugene Well, we could talk about Eugene all day because there's nobody who's had a greater impact in my life than Eugene Peterson. And I had an incredible... I'm not trying to drop names. I spent some time with him before death. Yeah. Actually, I think we have an affiliate together. Don Pape. Oh yeah. Dragged me up there. Yeah. What dragged me up there. And it was one of the greatest weeks of my life. Wow. Yeah. And so, no, I, I've read everything Eugene's done. So it's probably burned into my bones. Yeah. It's like gotten into Eugene. the water supply. So I want to, my follow-up question is, I wonder if you could just speak to, you know, you help pastor this huge church out in LA. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it sounds like it grew pretty fast, which is a real pastoral burden. It becomes a, the difficulty is like, how do I know these people? And now you're helping to lead this church out in Connecticut. I wonder mm-hmm. if you prefer one environment to the other based on your disposition. Mm. In a church of 150, you can really get to know people, which sharpens up your preaching. In a church of 5,000, the task is much different. Or did you not experience a difference? Maybe you maybe you no. found a way in the big church to get to know the personality enough that you could be precise out there. Well, I'll tell you a quick small story that always stuck in my heart about Eugene Peterson, about what you're asking. And uh, a Montana pastor who I will not name, who we all know, came and visited Eugene in his log cabin and told, kept telling him the wonders of his large, large church over and over again. I've got multi-site. I've got thousands and thousands of people. And Eugene looks him right in the eyes and says, Mr. X, 
He goes, but how many of their names do you know? Yeah. Mm. And uh, that forever, not destroyed me, but rebuilt me. Mm. And so I, I will always lean small church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe in J.D. Greer's gaining by losing. I believe in, I believe in the smaller communities. Now, don't get me wrong. I love big churches. I love big churches. I love preaching. I love the energy. I love the resources. Um, as a small church guy, you know, I'm always envious of the things that allow that free up pastors to do ministry greater. And that's things like a certain building and a certain assistant and a certain blah, blah, blah that I've sort of had to put on the altar. Hmm. But I will always fight for a smaller church or a house. And I also don't want to say this. I'll also just fight for a church of any size that gives a rat's butt about discipleship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you, if we're foregoing that for an ex- spiritual experience on Sunday mornings, cut me out of it, mm-hmm. cut me out of it. But if we're going like, no, you've got 5,000 people in your church who are radically obsessed with the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. who are pursuing holiness, who are, who are, you know, their, their wills and their wallets and their ways are all intertwined mm-hmm. with obedience then it's like, well, sign me up, dude. I just know the burdens of large churches. I've been in two mega churches in my life. Mm. I was in, a, like I said, small town in Prescott. It was a 3,500 person church of a town of 40,000. <laughs> like, dude, that's <laughs> nuts. Yeah. So I've been in both and I've also been in really small. The church I'm now has maybe 150. The church we planted in LA would get up to 250, 300, but the church reality LA was three to five. Like I've been in them all. I just care about people taking Jesus seriously. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, I'll take any size, but I think my heart relationally leans small because I love to be able to have a conversation with everybody in the church if I could. So good. Mm -hmm. Casey, I I love how podcasts work because we were like, let's step in here. Let's talk about storytelling. And we have touched so many other things that are so (laughs) valuable to preachers. Um, I want to direct us to the storytelling thing as we sort of get ready to like land the plane here. Yeah. Because you are, you're not just a storyteller as a preacher. You're an author who writes stories, and you're a manuscript preacher. When mm-hmm. you sit down to write a story, or to, you know you're going to tell a story in a sermon, whether it's a biblical story or it's a personal story, are there like practical steps or tips you can give to the pastor out there who's going, "I want to become a better storyteller. Like I want to be more vulnerable. Yeah. I want to. I want to be considering the stories of the people in the room. Yeah. How is Casey writing those?" Yeah. I, yeah. Um, a lot of my stories lean dark, as I think you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I lean, I love stories with real stakes. Mm. I hate fluff. Mm. I hate fluff. Hey, what we're talking about all day. So I look for a story to tell that people will go, okay, you've, you've, you've hooked me, mm. right? And I'm also looking for a story to tell kind of what we we're talking about. But I remember hearing Will Smith one time talk about how he picks a script and he goes, I'm just looking for one line in the script that goes, that's it. Mm. And so if there's a story, so I've written a few novels and um, I literally had like four more on the docket that I was like kind of entertaining that I would start and bore and I threw them away. But then literally two days ago, I had a full story enter my mind for one simple concept. And I wrote a 10,000 word short story in one day. Mm. A little dark horror story, and I'm pretty pumped on it. All that to say is, I think if you can find a way that tells a story where people realize there is there's something 
I keep saying at stake. That's always what I say. But there's just a cost to your story. Because if it's a story that doesn't have any sort of advantage or disadvantage, it's not a story. I don't know if it's worth. I don't know if it's worth listening to. Yeah, mm. I brushed and my so, teeth this morning. Is not a story. <laughs> a story has crisis and resolution in it. The stakes. There have to be stakes. But if you tell a story because I brushed my teeth this morning and I'm a blind guy and I went to the kitchen drawer exactly. and grabbed the wrong thing, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> and I started brushing my teeth. All that's a little graphic. I apologize, but you understand what yeah. I'm saying, which is. I think if anybody can just find a way to tell the story that actually has some like real acts to it, I tell you one of the best ways to tell a story, what people, I think preachers need to read, and you guys probably have already read this. It's just a man of a thousand faces by Joseph Campbell. If you haven't read that, mm. um, dude, cause he's the guy who created, he created the hero's journey. And I try to make sure that all stories are like the hero's journey. Mm. So it's literally, as you guys know, Harry Potter, Superman, Spider-Man, all Paul, the apostle, whoever you want to say, does the full hero's journey mm-hmm. every single time with rejecting the adventure, going to the adventure, dying, resurrected, comes back home. Frodo Baggins, like what? Boom, 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 boom. And if you can tell a story in that way, either mm-hmm. in the moment or through the entire sermon, mm-hmm. then I think that's what you're looking for. And those stories have stakes. Those stories have, um, they should be done, in my opinion, beautifully and poetically as much as possible to that particular preacher. Mm-hmm. And I'd say just very practically, if anybody's looking to tell a good story, do what um, Ginsburg said and said, uh, kill your darlings. Mm-hmm. Dude, people kill stories on, from pulpits because they have no idea how to self-edit. Mm-hmm. Stop giving me unnecessary details. How many times have you guys ever heard a story where like, last Tuesday, oh gosh, <laughs> was it min- Monday? Oh, it might have been, been Sunday. <laughs> right. In 1990, was it 98? It's like, who cares? Yeah. A handful of years ago, I ran my car into the side of a building. Yeah. That's what you need to start with, yeah. right? So as, as long as people can learn how to self-edit, do their hero's journey, be able to tell something with real stakes where people like, again, a homiletical plot, uh, Eugene Lowry, mm-hmm. disrupt the equilibrium. Totally. Dis- disrupt it. And so I think those type of things, and I'll also just say this, there's some people who just can't tell, tell a story to save their life. You know what I mean? And so you have to almost realize how do you tell a story with what you are and what you have? And if you try to incorporate a few of these little things, I think you could possibly get there. But those are just some of the practices I do. And I always, I just literally rip off the hero's journey. So I rip it off every time. Going back to Eugene for a second, Eugene, I think, rec- I mean, especially towards the end of his life, started recommending more and more that preachers just read good stories. So you read the great novelists and you read good memoirs because that alerts you to the Mm. dynamics of story and to storytelling and to how to spot stakes, you know? Yep. Do you find yourself recommending that to other preachers? Like, hey, if you want to get better at storytelling, why don't you read some stories and watch (laughs) some people that like actually do it and it might rub off on you? Do you find yourself recommending that to preachers? Dude, you, yeah, and they're probably the same way you guys do. It's like, dude, leaders are readers and readers are leaders. Yeah. Like, if you're not, and I would only say this too, like, you're not going to give, usually hear me give a sermon illustration about um, some sort of modern book. And a Colleen Hoover book, they're going to be like, what? No, <laughs> but I'm going to all day talk about uh, Shakespeare. Mm. And I'm going to talk about Hamlet uh, and, and King Duncan or whatever. Like, I think if we, ha- I think pastors should have to be reading 
all of the greats. And that's why, that's why I think should be, people should be leaning on Harold Bloom a little bit. And what he says in his Western Canyon is literally the greatest books that have ever been written. We need to be reading Canterbury Tales. We need to be reading Dostoevsky. We yep. need to be reading and getting these guys in our gut, not only to tell a good story, but also it's literally just putting arsenal into your mm-hmm. firearms. Like, dude, these are so rich. What wells are you drinking from? Yeah. Which wells? And so going back and read from these guys, and they're all highly spiritual, whether they realize, realize it or not. So, yeah, I try to read the classics. I try to be that guy who's like, okay. But I also say, and I don't know if you guys agree with this or not, um, a pastor or preachers need to be um, bathed in, in poetry. Yep. So Mary Oliver, my f- favorite, Charles Simic. <laughs> Uh, John, um, I did not plan John this for the record. <laughs> I did not plan this. I mean, I read Mary so, Oliver on the daily, so I'm, I'm, I'm all about it, but yeah, man. yeah, you, you have to, and dude, that's just, it shows you new diction. Yeah. It adds to your diction. And if people are not even adding words to your diction, mm. then we're going to be stuck in the same language. But dude, I want to be able to learn not only to tell a story, but how to say the story mm-hmm. and poets Thank God for them. Yeah. And if a preacher doesn't like poetry and they think it's too feminine, you better rip the book of Psalms out of your Bible, dude. <laughs> That's what right I now. say. And, throw it. <laughs> and the prophets too. It's all poetry. And the, It's all poetry. Yeah. God's a poet. It's absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. So immerse and find your favorite poets. Like mm-hmm. literally get in there. I've got so many that I'm obsessed with and it's just changed my preaching. Mm-hmm. And it changed my storytelling and my book writing. Completely. Casey, this has been honestly a gift. You are a pastor and you have that prophetic meat cleaver voice. <laughs> we we have people who are going to be listening to this who are in a few days getting ready to preach a sermon, stand up mm. on a platform or a stage on Sunday. I want to give you a minute here. What is one word of encouragement that you could give to those pastors and those preachers? Or word of challenge even. I think that might come easier for you. <laughs> you know i uh that's a really sweet thought and i appreciate being able to have a final word with that i think what i probably wish i would have had somebody tell me so so many years ago mm-hmm. is um a lot of your prayers as you're doing sermon prep need to be born out of a burden a beautiful burden and a heart of loving the people you're preaching mm-hmm. warts and all mm-hmm. and flaws and all, because like you guys, there are people out there who are potentially going through church discipline, who you are disciplining. There's people out there who do not like you. Mm-hmm. There's people out there who are furious with you. There's people out there who don't think you're a good preacher. Mm-hmm. There's people out there who love the, love you to pieces. And unless we start incarnating lowercase I, unless we start incarnating Christ's love to them, I just think every word will fall by the wayside. Mm. And so, of course, that's the whole thing. I know we talk about a greater love for the Lord. Of course, the preachers know that. But I don't, I'm not seeing, and this is me in my small spheres, is an immense growing burden has said steadfast, immovable, committed love Mm. for their people. Mm -hmm. And so if people just started praying for that, 
I think that would radically change their preaching and stop preaching and stop praying. Like you can pray, make me a better preacher, but start praying, make me a better lover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make me somebody who just is obsessed with these people, despite where they're at in life or despite what they treat of me, that non-transactional love that I'm going to be delivering them God's love and God's news news from a heart that is burdened for them and for their life and for their circumstances. Wow. Casey, that, thank you. That's beautifully and well said. Casey, thank you so much for joining us on uh, our first ever episode of Preaching Lab. Mm. This is a gift. Casey, we'll talk to you. You guys, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.